Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back, Conrad's Corner. Thanks very much for tuning in. Really excited today, as always, another phenomenal guest, Carl Gomez from CoStar. How are you? Great. How are you? Thank you for having me. Good. Chief Economist, Real Estate Strategist. What's what's your actual title? So I'm CoStar Canada. I'm Chief Economist and Head of Market Analytics in CoStar, or CoStar in Canada. So all things research. All things research, all things data, all things market. Yep. All right. Well, listen, that's always in high demand. People that watch our show want to know about data, commercial real estate data specifically. So you will be uh, well received here and people are going to want to know your insights. Uh, Before we get into that, tell me a little bit about your history and and where you come from before CoStar. Sure. So I have about 25 years of experience, uh, both as an economist and real estate investment strategist. I started my career early on with TD Bank, RBC Bank as an economist. Okay. Uh, working on the trading floor. And then I joined in 2006 Bentall, uh, which became Bentall Kennedy, Bentall yep. G, uh, BGO. BGO, um, yeah. And I was there for almost 16 years uh, as head of research and their chief economist. And, and for people who don't know BGO, primarily, what do they, Bentall Kennedy, what do they focus on? They're landlords, they're, they're investment. They're owners of real estate, yep. they're investment managers as well. They have multiple funds and invested in real estate for, you know, big and large, primarily institutional clients. Right. Um, so they're pretty big footprint in, in Canada, United States, and globally yeah. now as well with the with the, um, the G part of their, yep. their name. Absolutely. So you would have had insight and in, in seen the paperwork on on. Massive institutional deals. Oh, we've we've done some very very big deals mm-hmm. uh, um, across across Canada, across North America. Um, so been involved in that. I worked directly with the acquisitions group and the development teams. Yeah. So worked on some very big strategic uh, acquisitions and, and developments that we did uh, over that period of time. Um, but then I moved on to Quadrial Property Group. Of course, yeah. Quadrial is the investment manager, real estate investment manager for BCIMC, yeah. uh, the pension fund out in BC. And they have close to $30 billion, even more than that in global real estate, but a very large presence in Canada as an owner of both office, industrial and apartments and retail as well. Um, so I worked there for a couple of years after Bentall, um, and I was head of research and strategy there as well. Yep. Um, worked primarily with the development teams and the acquisition teams uh, uh, in, in Canada, but also helped uh, formulate the global strategy as well over there. Um, interesting times. I would say the last 10 years have seen a lot of external shocks, the financial ah, crisis, no the pandemic. Um, so, you know, we worked through those those shocks, but also over that period of time, as as your listeners probably know, real estate and commercial real estate has seen extraordinary growth and, and increases in values, yeah. and compression in cap rates. And, and so being on the research side has been fascinating to kind of watch the the drivers of what's going on there. For sure. So, I mean, and especially with, with BGO and with Quadrial. I mean, BGO, from my experience with them, I'm primarily more office landlords. Is that a fair statement? Yes. Uh, you know, they definitely have a very big footprint in the office, yeah. um, but they were in the all, all asset classes and yeah. say uh, every every single one of the four major food groups. Um, and Quadrial is is a big presence in industrial, though. Quadrial has a very big presence in industrial, big yeah. presence in office as well, yeah. major office holders. Uh, but the interesting thing about Quadrial is they're diversifying into alternative real estate investments like data centers and okay. you know, medical life sciences and things like that as yeah. well. So it was kind of interesting to kind of look at, you know, going on to that other side of the the ledger. of That would be great to be at, at the fringe of that, because yeah. as we know, those are hot topics these days. They're very Huge. prominent. People are talking about data centers, life science. Yeah. Yeah. And Interesting. It, my group was you know, researching the long-term trends, the demographics, the technology, mm. um, the drivers of why those asset classes are seeing growth. So it's kind of interesting to kind of see, you know, 
the thesis of that and then eventually see the investment of it as well when you know right soup to nuts and watching how that that thesis evolves yeah and then from quadrille directly to co-star so you know i took some time off and was yep. right at the uh, pandemic and decided to kind of put my feet back up uh, for a little bit i did some consulting privately through the pandemic in the early part of the pandemic that must have been interesting it was good <laughs> there was a lot of calls that i was getting yeah no doubt time, you know so I, I took some time out for myself and my family to be able to do that uh, and then I got a call from CoStar, um, and they asked some, you know, wanted to have somebody to head up Canada. Yeah. Uh, and that was a very interesting opportunity because I worked in investment management for a long period of time, and now I'm going onto the data technology side, which was a very big shift. Yeah. But it allowed me to, um, you know, open up the lens and kind of see things from a very unbiased standpoint. Like I had no skin in the game exactly. on, on things, but you know, comment on the market. And CoStar is one of the largest real estate providers, information providers in the world. For sure. Um, very, very large presence in the United States. Anybody who's doing any work in real estate, owner, tenant, um, uses CoStar for their data. Yep. Um, they came to Canada back in 2015. Okay. Um, and brought the model here, but, you know, we're still in the growth phase in Canada and trying to bring that model up. So, you know, I've been very much helping them develop their brand and develop their processes here in Canada. The comment on Canadians and specifically when it comes around technology, that the, the, the ramp up period tends to be a little bit longer. It's kind of like a hockey stick. It's this way and then boom, exponentially. Oh, for sure. You know, let's say, you know, in my 25 years of real estate experience, a lot of the deals were done in the backseat of a car. You mm. know, you open up the back and here's your paper. Today, it's really moved on to more um, transparency and the data has really helped. Yeah. And I think the, our industry, particularly here in Canada, which I think we've lagged a little bit, <clears throat> has now started to adopt the, the importance of data and data analytics in, in the real estate decision. So it brings real estate as an asset class uh, in line with, say, stocks, bonds, where that, you know, that information and that data was key to, to driving investment. And I think our industry is now kind of transitioned into that sort of thing now. So it's yeah, good. It, it is good. And certainly, as you mentioned, and people know this, I mean, even in Canada now, CoStar is at the forefront of the industry, if not the forefront of the industry, with some of your colleagues on other sides that are doing it. Um, it it's phenomenal. And, and I know for our agents, for Royal Page Commercial agents, the ones that are part of that program, they love it. Yeah. It, you know, and, and we provide the tools necessary for agents, um, brokers, um, owners, uh, tenants. Um, to really, you know, open up the microscope and see into markets. Our, our platform, our web-based platform, allows you to kind of construct a market uh, at your own leisure, but even, you know, drill down to the major markets across the country, some of the sub-markets as well, and understand what's going on underneath the hood you know, from a data perspective. Um, and the benefit of that, too, I think, is, you know, real estate, no, no two real estate is the same, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, there's apples and oranges. What we try to provide is a consistent approach in our methodology, which differentiates us. It's, it's all, you know, methodology that we're providing, say, in Toronto is the same methodology we're providing in London, UK, or New York. Um, so that gives a holistic sort of approach to providing, you know, a standardized methodology. Standardized consistency, yeah. people like that. Uh, for those people that don't know and haven't used CoStar, um, what can you tell us a little bit about what the value is for landlords, owners, investors, agents. I mean, it's everybody uses it. Well, you know, for investors, I think one of the biggest benefits is you can really get into the sense of a particular property or asset and understand, you know, what the transactional history of that, that asset itself, who the true owners are, because mm -hmm. as we know in real estate, there are different layers of ownership. Um, but we do provide, you know, market intelligence directly on that so that we have an accurate perception of the ownership of that asset, uh, what the transaction history has been, 
um, for that owner or asset manager, you also have a you know pretty good indication of competing assets, um, who their tenant base is, what the lease rates are, things like that. Uh, so that gives you competitive intelligence on on your leasing and your transaction activity as well. Um, for the, for the tenants, you know, again, it's a market snapshot. Like, you know, what are the competitive rents yeah. over here versus there? Um, and and we survey. You know, I think different than a lot of brokerages that provide market information, we survey the entire market. It's a census-based approach mm-hmm. to going things. So every single property that has a commercial tag on it is something that we 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 look at, trying to you know figure out what the what the wow. data is for that. I mean, what are we talking about? How many commercial properties would you be trying to get information on in Canada? Tens, tens of thousands. Wow. Um, you know, and again, CoStar takes an approach of calling the right people. You know, having connections on data feeds. We yeah. also have planes that fly over to look for developments and, and to see where they're, they're at. So It's crazy yeah. to think that this is where the industry has gone this is from yeah. people sending faxes and, and getting in cars and driving over offers back and forth and trying to figure out what comps are to, oh, you need that? No problem. Let me pull you up a market report in the next hour, in the next five minutes. Whatever you need, I got it for you. And, and that's the exact point is it's real-time analytics for for an asset class that, that hasn't seen that for yeah. a very long time or hasn't had it. You know, in the 20 years I've been in this business, most of what has happened in real estate has been gut gut checks. Yeah. Um, people who talk and, and and you get information market intelligence that way. This takes it one step beyond. And the gut is very still important, you know, speaking from my investment experience. Yep. But now you have quantifiable data to act on things. And, and I think that's that's the big, big driver for it. And for you guys, I've been to your facility. I've seen it in downtown Toronto. It's phenomenal. I think what's really interesting is, I mean, it's a well-oiled machine. You've got an entire call center of people sitting there making calls, digging up information, trying to get to the next level of the deal information, the ownership information. I mean, it's it's unbelievable. It's like a well-oiled little machine, research machine sitting there. I think that's the exact description is a well-oiled machine. There is a process that's been developed over years to make sure that data is timely, accurate. Um, checks and balances, and that's been brought to Canada. It mm-hmm. takes a little bit of time because sure. we are an American American company, and in the U.S. is a little bit more transparent than Canada is. Canada is more transparent than Europe, and we're going into Europe now. Um, so you have to kind of fine tune that process to the country that you're in, and we're doing great strides. We have a Definitely. dedicated research team in Canada in the major markets to be able to suss out that information. But we've taken that model, that well-oiled model of how to get that information and, and put it in place. So. It's definitely um, a growth situation that we're yeah. in right now, but yeah. definitely, you know, it's great to see because we're opening up some more transparency. In the Canadian Absolutely. I mean, listen, there's there's always room for improvement, yeah. but truth be told, when CoStar first came and, and some of the other data aggregators comparables, it was tough. The, yeah. the knock on it was always, ah, you know, the information's dated, the information's yeah. not there. But if we're being honest, it's, it's light years ahead of where it was now. Now it's, I don't know what you would would say that your accuracy percentage is, but from our experience and in talking to my agents, the, the accuracy is light years where it was, and it's really getting to a point where it's valuable information. Ab- absolutely. And I'll say from my perspective, I sat at the other side of the boardroom where yeah. I, you know, I would use CoStar when they when they first came to pitch in Canada. And we we were, you know, at that point in time, they hadn't developed the platform and we were a little suspect at that time about the data. Um, but in the last five years, and I can say, you know, under under my leadership with the, with their analytics group, we've really helped to kind of say, well, you know, we've got to recenter this data, make sure to look for for nuts and bolts and things like that. And in my team, um, they are on the ground real estate professionals who've worked in the industry for a mm-hmm. long period of time. I have somebody mm-hmm. in Vancouver, somebody in Montreal. We have people here in Toronto. 
Um, they know those markets intimately, and they work together with their research teams to make sure and compile that data so that there's accuracy there. So it's not just you know people in call centers who don't have real estate experience right. pulling this stuff. We have the oversight of my team sitting there who are real estate professionals who've been in the in the industry to oversight that data. Gotcha. So we so really up the quality. You've had boots on the ground, people that were in the trenches. They can vet the information. Correct. They understand what you're looking at now. Yeah. Uh, phenomenal. Really good. But from your day-to-day operations, I mean, you're not uh, down at the, the level of making calls. Obviously, no. you're from a more macro level. People love, and I follow you obviously on LinkedIn and everywhere I can follow you, but I follow a lot of your reports and a lot of your projections. Uh, is that what you're primarily focused on these so, days? Yeah. So my team is the analytics group. And what we try to do is take the data that we have, you know, the, the whole market itself and craft the story. You know, what's the story around what's developing in the market? Because data it, by itself is just data, but you need to connect the dots and come out and see what, you know, what the story is that's coming about. And so my team specifically does that. We have um, dedicated uh, market analytics directors in each of the major sub-markets to cover those local stories because real estate is all local. Uh, I sit above that and craft the macro story. You know, how does that feed into the overall picture? Um, my experience as an economist, you know, I've, I've spent years, you know, forecasting interest rates and inflation and mm-hmm. macro GDP sort of stuff. But I, what I try to do is take those macro drivers and link them back to real estate. Uh, because sometimes, you know, in our, in our industry, Real estate kind of stands here, but we don't know how the bigger trends are really impacting things. Um, and so that's where I kind of sit in uh, as, a, as the oversight for that overall bigger picture. And my team who is on the ground is kind of linking back to that story. So we really are trying to connect the dots and really trying to you know suss out the story. And again, because we are a data company, we're yep. completely unbiased in, in what we're presenting. You know, there is no spin. Uh, we don't have an angle. Uh, we'll give you the straight goods, and you know it's up to you as an owner, investor, um, you know, lender, whoever you are, you know, to take that information how you want. I think that's great—the ability for you guys to have no vested interest, just present the data as you see it. Um, talking about stories, and from the macro level, I mean, we'll get into a little bit of the minutia, but before we get there, coming out of the pandemic, we're seeing hopefully the tail end of it, and how we're coming out of it. We're uh, just wrapped up Q1, 2023. Looking at the last 12, 16, 18, 24 months, what are some of the big stories that you were covering? And then some of the ones we'll get into that you see going forward. Well, no doubt. I mean, coming out of a pandemic is a once in a generation, if not once in a hundred years sort of situation. Yeah, we hope. <laughs> we we hope. And, and you know, as, as ever, everything, it's had an impact on the economy. But even more importantly, it's had an impact on on businesses and consumers. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's from a more of a structural level than it is or a behavioral level than it is just a cyclical sort of thing. Those changes in the way we do things, both as consumers and businesses, we use real estate. That's going to change how people use real estate. So I would say, you know, from a big, big picture phenomenon that that pandemic has to some extent changed behaviors. Um, some of these behaviors were already changing before the pandemic, yeah. and the pandemic just accelerated you know, those changes. And so we're starting to see that directly on the real estate assets. Speaking as an economist, we've also come out of a very big cyclical change. Um, you know, Inflation and interest rates are a, a major story these days. Yeah. And it's the back end of what we did you know, when we were in the pandemic, when governments, you know, policymakers were extremely worried about the impact on the economy. And they stimulated to hell, yeah. you know, the economy, both fiscal stimulus, monetary stimulus, ultra low interest rates. 
And now we're unwinding that. And that has a big impact on real estate. As we know, real estate is a very interest rate sensitive asset class. Yep. And we've seen interest rates move from effectively zero back up to levels that we haven't seen in years. And so that opens up a whole set of other questions as well. And it makes for me as, a, as a, an economist and you know, market uh, analyst, a uh, very interesting situation because there is a heck of a lot of uncertainty out there. Yeah. There is, isn't there? Yeah. It still is. And yeah. I think that might be one of the most surprising things. And we'll get into this, but just talking about the return to the office, yes, work from home, uh, businesses, what it looks like, the economy, inflation. I think one of the surprising things I hear uh, day in and day out is just, you know, I thought it would have been back to normal, whatever that is at this point by now. Uh, I thought business would have been ramped up and at the pre-pandemic levels by now. It's still not. Well, you know, you raise an interesting point, back to normal. Um, when, you know, when I look at some of the literature and history of pandemics, mm. there is always a new normal that comes out of pandemics. You know, what happened back with the Spanish flu, yeah. it's happening now. And, and so the normal that we're seeing is a new normal. And, you know, you always have to be careful and say, you know, it's different this time, but it, but there is some differences that are happening. And as I mentioned, you know, with the pandemic, it accelerated some trends that were already there. When I think about the office market, you know, a lot of us know gig workers. Um, we've seen the ri rise of co-working suites. Yeah. How we work has changed over the last several decades and technology has facilitated that. If you're in an intellectual job, where you're, you're creating ideas and things like that, you, know, you can work from pretty much anywhere. And when the pandemic hit and we were told not to leave our houses, mm -hmm. it was a real life experiment to see whether we could actually accomplish that, not just for independent workers and gig workers, but even those people who are working in big companies. Uh, very difficult for management of those big companies to oversee your people when they're not working in an office. Um, but but I would say, you know, looking at things, we came out of that and, and showed that we can actually do that. And today, now that the restrictions are lifted, there is a big resistance to having to go into the office five days a week. Um, you know, companies were are being flexible with it because we have a tight labor market right now. And people yep. will say, if you don't give me that, I'm going to go to another company. Um, so we're seeing this kind of standoff now between management and workers <laughs> to see whether we can continue on this hybrid route. And again, this was a real world experiment on, on working from home. Hybrid is going to be a real world experiment to see whether that exists. And that, I think that standoff inside of where we are in the economy right now is going to be something interesting to see what happens for the office market. Uh, I do too. And certainly vacancy rates being what they are, I think that's probably still a little bit of a shock, a little bit of a surprise to people yeah. looking now at you know Q2 2023. Um, the labor market, you mentioned that there is still a bit of a pull, push and pull, but labor numbers are surprisingly pretty good. I mean, uh, just thinking about over the last couple months since late last year, I mean, up every month, I think. Yeah, we. I mean, Canada's actually seen a very resilient labor market and we've seen some very good job growth. Uh, our unemployment rate is at record lows, at yeah. 5%. And that tightness in the labor market is actually one major reason why the Bank of Canada and other central banks continue to raise interest rates is because they feel the economy is too hot. Again, I like to look beneath the numbers and look at the details and while it is true that we've seen some strong job growth happen, um, we've also noticed that there's a lot of segments that haven't seen strong job growth. Oh. Um, a lot of the job growth that Canada has seen coming out of the pandemic to get back to where we were pre-pandemic levels was actually driven by the, the public sector, by right. public administration. Private sector employment hiring has done relatively well, but again, it just depends on what side you're on. Office using employment did very well into the pandemic and coming out of it. Uh, we saw growth rates of four, seven, 
four to six percent year over year increases in job growth and office using employment. Wow. Um, so that that was the good news. But during the pandemic, what we notice is that typically office employment and office net absorption correlate with one another, right? You, you hire people, bums in the seats, you need that office space. Because of the pandemic, we saw a lot of hiring that happened virtually and people who got hired stayed at home. Yeah. And so we didn't see that you know response rate of employment going up and absorption going up. In fact, we saw absorption going down, wow. firms giving back space. So now the question is all these people who are hired, do they come back to the office? You know, do, do firms want to take on more space? Well, now we're in a recessionary sort of environment. You know, you've no doubt heard some of the stories, you know, Amazon just talked today about yeah. 4,000 cuts in jobs. All that hiring that they did amped up with all the stimulus that the governments did for these technology companies. They are now cutting back and holding back. So you've got two big, you know, constraints or headwinds for the office sector is one, you know, this dealing with work from home, hybrid work uh, sort of situation. Then you've also got a recession here where companies are pulling back. And I think the takeaway from that is you continue to have these big headwinds on the demand for office space at a time. And this is another story where we're seeing a lot more new supply coming into the market. Um, you know, in, in Toronto, we've had upwards of 12 million square feet of new space coming onto the downtown markets. Yeah. Even before the pandemic and this impact on new, on, on demand, vacancy rates were likely to trend back up because of the, the new construction. The new construction. Yeah, I mean, that's a big number. And then yeah. dealing already with uh, vacancy rates as well as shadow space and people trying to decide what they want to do with their space. Yes. You mentioned about the tech sector. It, it does seem like they've really taken a kick in the last little while. I mean, you see daily articles about uh, Salesforce and, yep. and Amazon and Google and, and everybody. I mean, it's it should be interesting. Of course, there's a story close here locally about, about uh, the well. Yes. Um, I mean, what kind of impact does that really have when a space that big is just said to be given up? Well, you know, that's the that's the story. And, you know, again, this, you know, we look at the CoStar data for, for clues on this. Sublease space has really picked up dramatically. It's still well above its long-term average, still well above its its pre-pandemic five-year average. Um, lots of firms are reassessing their space needs and putting it out in the sublease market. So that adds to the supply picture effectively, is that, you know, we're seeing that. This is not just a Canadian story. We've mm. seen this happen in the US markets and in the UK as well. A lot of firms are reevaluating their space needs. Um, I, I would say the new supply was, you know, a lot of it was spoken for. It was pre-leased to, you know, when we think about the well, Shopify yep. and groups like that. And even them are now starting to pull back. For the owners of those buildings, that's fine. I'm sure Shopify is still going to be paying a rent check, but you got to deal with that space at some point, right? So that's going to add to the sublease pressure. Um, and that's, again, this is a story in Toronto that we're seeing. It's even a story in Vancouver. Yeah. And, you know, Amazon, as I mentioned, pulled back. Uh, there was a very large development in 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 Vancouver called the Post. Yep. Um, you know, very big footprint for Vancouver in terms of the space that that that, that office space, and that was all leased to Amazon. Uh, they were going to take the two towers, and now they're pulling back on the second tower. So when you add that all together, purely from a market standpoint, there is a lot more space available than where the demand is. Uh, I would say that we are kind of structurally right now in a tenants market where yep. landlords are really going to have to compete to get people in to those buildings. And it's not a tale of one type of building because, you know, as we know with real estate, some buildings are still in very, very strong demand. Um, if, if you're trying to attract talent and attract, you know, the best employees to come to the office, you have to offer them great amenities. You have to make the place look like a, a hotel. Yeah. Um, it can't just look like four walls in a brown place with dividers. 
Um, so the best office buildings, which are typically newer, uh, provide all of those amenities and, and are doing well and seeing the demand. In addition, you know, we just came out of a pandemic and people are concerned about health. Yep. These new buildings have the best HVACs, the best technology, the best flexibility for the new world that we're in. And they're poaching that, that demand. These older office buildings mm -hmm. that have been around for years uh, have been, they've typically been, you know, filled up because of their great locations, call it Bain King and the old financial district. They have to reinvent themselves to get people in there. It's no good just to be a great location in an iconic area. You have to be a building that that's going to attract people. And if you can't do that as an owner, you you get in, pro in a bit of a problem because you have to keep those elevators running too at the same time. So you're funneling in money, but if you're not getting the cash flow from the tenants that are there, that becomes an issue. And I think that's kind of where we are with the office market right now. Um, we could talk a little bit about uh, pricing. Um, is that going to be a differentiator before we get into pricing just about the offerings that these buildings, especially the newer ones, are going to be able to offer? Because the older ones, how are they going to be able to compete unless they invest some capital into that? But if they do, then what happens to the op costs? Uh, you know, our parent company, Brookfield, I, often I'm down at, at 181 Bay and, and you know, it's it's still pretty quiet. Yeah. You know, in my litmus test, I, our offices are at 181 Bay. Yep. Um, and my, my litmus test is the Starbucks downstairs yes. <laughs> because pre pandemic, that Starbucks was yeah. busy. Yeah. Tech. Line up around, yeah. line up around. And Starbucks has not reopened that even with mm. the return to the office because they're just not seeing the foot traffic that we saw before. Um, I can tell you, I was, I was downtown yesterday and down in the path. Yep. And on a Monday afternoon at 12 o'clock, it was very quiet. Listen, very, very quiet. Uh, the Monday, yes, Mondays and Fridays. Mondays I was down there on a Friday around 3 p.m. And it was like a scene from The Walking Dead. Yeah, there was like nobody there. Yeah. You, you, um, you go there on a Wednesday, it's a different story. Yeah. But I think that just speaks to the hybrid sort of situation that's going on. People will come in for a couple of days in around Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. Those tail yeah. ends, you're yeah. not getting the foot traffic. And that, you know, based on our data and looking at the path, which is a very large retail segment, high-end retail. There's still a lot of vacancy there, and that just speaks to the foot traffic not being there. Yeah, surprising. Um, what are you seeing then based on rents? Well, you know, this is the transition that we're in. You know, rents can be sticky. I, I would say that on, on the newer buildings, based on the data that we're seeing, we're seeing a premium on rents, and those face rates are holding up quite well. Really? On the, on the newer buildings. Yeah, because, that, would, that would probably shock the average person, though. You yeah. know, the fact that the rents are staying there and haven't really moved that much. Yeah, on the, on the, on the newer buildings. You go to the older buildings okay. and some of the, you know, I would still say they're A-class buildings. Those face rents still kind of hold up. Beneath all of that, the net effect of rents are really coming off because there's incentives, there's, you know, all sorts of discounts that are being mm. involved to get people into those buildings. So the deal information be behind the curtain that CoStar gets behind and looks into it. Yes. That's where you're seeing where the changes have happened. That, that's where the changes are happening. And for me, as a market analyst, I'm not surprised by that. The litmus test, you know, to see how a market evolves when you get all this vacancy was Calgary. You know, the poster child there, they were dealing with 30% vacancy rate. We actually saw the net effect of rents in Calgary go from, you know, just slightly positive to zero to actually negative. Wow. Where the landlords were actually effectively paying tenants to fill up their buildings. And I'm not saying that's going to happen in Toronto with every building. But what I am saying is that, you know, with, with rising vacancy and a vacancy rate above its long-term equilibrium, yep. that is effectively in, in the favor of tenants. Um, we're not going to see much rent growth at, 
if any, on, on an effective basis for a lot of the owners of these buildings. Um, and that's entirely consistent with the vacancy rate where it's at. And so that's the story that's starting to develop right now in office. Interesting, interesting. Not Listen, not necessarily a bad story. I mean, the average person, the, the, the average Joe would be like, no problem. You know, these, these multi-billion, multi-trillion dollar landlords, let them, you know, hold up the, the bag a little bit for a little while. Let the tenants kind of come out of this. And if they get, you know, some of the benefit of it for a little while, so be it. I've been in this business long enough to say that in kind of, you know, distressing circumstances where, where the economy is changing, that's where there's opportunity. And for some of these owners, there is opportunities to reinvent their assets. Um, I think back to, you know, when e-commerce started coming in for retail and, and we started seeing retail assets, bricks and mortar retail being affected by e-commerce as people shift into going online. And so a lot of the owners of those assets had to reinvent mm-hmm. their retail properties. And what they had was a lot of density in these parking lots and put up a condo, uh, put up an apartment building, create dedicated demand. Um, so you had to be imaginative with, with your real estate at that point in time to kind of create that, that, you know, in use demand. I think that's where we're going to be with office now is reimagine what some of these office buildings can be. Again, turning back to Calgary, you know, given that they have got, you know, effectively a 30% vacancy rate, there's a whole bunch of office buildings that are obsolete and, mm. and don't have function, functional use. And some of the landlords are now reimagining it to be residential. Um, you know, you could do some sort of mixed use sort of residential. Yep. Only issue with that is anybody who's been in development knows office floor plates are very big. Yes. And not, it can, not every office building can be converted into residential. You have to have windows somewhere. Yeah. Um, the other side of that is, of course, you know, how the, um, you know, how the regulatory community kind of looks at things. Are you going to be able to get a permit to take, take what is effectively a commercial building into a residential building? Um, you know, governments obviously have their wants to have commercial buildings in place and employment growth. So you're at odds with that. So it's not an easy transition, right? but there are opportunities. There are opportunities. Um, You're absolutely right. I think we we had John Crombie on the show recently. He talked about exactly that, the way retail had to reimagine what they were doing, going from bricks and mortar to an online presence to curbside pickup to adding uh, entertainment for dwell time. So that industry's had to reimagine and reinvent itself a little bit. Robin Brown was just on the show and she from IBI and, and from crew, she talked also about it's nice to imagine transforming obsolete office buildings into residential, but practically speaking, there's a lot that goes into it. It's, it's very difficult from the location perspective, permit perspective, floor plate perspective, cost perspective, which is, you know, we haven't even talked about that, what the cost of construction are these days. That brings us to kind of the macro story that's yeah. underlying all this. I mean, this is supply and demand. Um, fundamentals. But, you know, the macro story is one where we've seen inflation ramp up and caught everybody, even the central banks, uh, in, in surprise. If you remember, dial back to 2021, 2020, when they were stimulating and dropped interest rates to all-time lows, the central bank governor at that time said, you know, go out and take a variable rate mortgage. Interest rates aren't going to go up anywhere because inflation is dead. And then all of a sudden, we saw inflation come back. And, you know, 8% consumer price inflation is pretty, pretty intense. That was the peak. It is coming down. I'll talk about that in a second. But when we think about the construction side yeah. and construction costs, construction cost inflation, I'm just talking about the hard costs, concrete, steel, that mm-hmm, sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. Those costs are up 20% year over year. If you are a developer and you're performing your return for a development, and, you know, when I worked in development, we'd perform a, like a 5% construction cost inflation. 
20%, your, your, your returns are knocked out of the water and yeah. you can't do the project. Yeah. So it's not surprising now that we are seeing some projects being stalled, some projects that were in the proposal stage just completely to remain on the sidelines because we can't make the numbers work with the construction yeah. costs. Yeah. Some, but not that many. I mean, it's not it's not a crescendo, a wave of all these projects being canceled and, no. and halted. No, which is some developers have been smart. You know, fixed price contracts on your construction yep. kind of help to mitigate some of that. Um, <laughs> some of them are, you know, well capitalized uh, developers. Many of the pension funds are, yeah. so they're, they're they're able to internalize that 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 issue. Um, my concern, you know, in looking at what's happening in the United States, where the capital structure of real estate is different than Canada. Canada, we're far more equity than debt. Yeah. Debt developers, uh, guys that are using CMBS or, you know, some sort of tradable debt, they're having problems. Mm. And so there is distress happening over there. In Canada, we don't have that same sort of structure. So for the most part, we haven't seen that. But I think a lot of newer deals um, where the lending markets have tightened up quite a bit. And, and a smaller developer that requires that debt may have problems doing it. So the existing stuff that's in the pipeline, we haven't seen a lot of cancellations or things fall right. apart on the seams. But I think in terms of new supply, as long as that inflation is kicking in, but more importantly, I think as long as the interest rates remain high, that may curb the amount of new supply that that comes into the market. From well, that's, the, that's the magic question then. So, yeah. you know, Carl Gomez on the spot, the hot seat. What's going to happen with inflation? So, so I already see, you know, inflation peaked up at 8%. Yep. And we already are starting to see on a headline basis inflation coming back down. It's come down to about 5%. Those are year over year numbers. We did a little bit of an analysis on, on inflation on a month to month basis. Month to month, we are starting to revert back. So the three month annualized rate of inflationary growth is already down to two, 3%. Um, things have really slowed down on in inflation. So a lot of the inflation that we've seen is from from last year yeah. because of year-over-year effects. I believe that the economy is not really driving as strong inflationary growth as the central banks are making it out to be. Um, and and one one of the you know smoking guns for that is to look at wage growth. Yes, uh, wages aren't keeping up with inflation. Real wage growth is actually negative. The purchasing mm. power of consumers is actually choking a little bit. In the seventies and eighties, when we had real inflation. It was wages increased, they would push inflation up. So there's a wage price spiral. We, we don't see that happening right now. So my belief is that inflation is ne- not necessarily going to stay high for a long period of time. It is sticky. And a lot of that stickiness is still coming out of the pandemic because of you know supply chains that got disrupted, um, demand that kind of came out of the gate right away with all the stimulus. It, but but the prices are likely going to revert back to where they were for the last 30 years, where, where things were like, you know, between a range of one to three percent. So I think inflation is going to come down. And I think the Bank of Canada, at least as, yep. as one central bank, already knows that, which is why they paused after their last hike in January. They are assessing the situation right now. They're looking at where inflation is. They're not going to tell you or I, <laughs> oh, you know, we don't see inflation as a problem because they failed on that score before. They're dealing with a credibility problem. So right now they're marketing to everybody. We're going to be hard on inflation. The Federal Reserve is doing the same thing. They have to say that. But in the back rooms where economists like me are, they're looking at these data points and saying, look, inflation is coming off. We have to be careful where, where financial conditions go and interest rates. You know, you read the paper today, uh, SVP, Silicon Valley Bank, failed. Yes. Um, there have been some other failures that are happening. That's the result of financial conditions being way too tight. Right. And so there's a there's a push and a pull that the central banks are dealing with. Yeah, they're talking out of one side of their mouth on inflation, but on the other side, this could impact growth. 
And my belief and our belief at CoStar, you know, looking at the tea leaves, is that we're probably in a period right now where there's going to be a pause in interest rates. We're already at 4.5%, which is very restrictive for the economy. But as the economy starts to slow down, we've already seen the housing market slow down. Interest rate sensitive sectors are pulling back. Businesses are pulling back. Yep. We may be in a situation where the Bank of Canada may have to start cutting interest rates. So I think, and I'm sticking my neck out a little yeah. bit, that by this time next year, we'll be talking about rate cuts as opposed to uh, rate increases to get interest rates back to a level that is more neutral for the economy rather than restrictive. Gotcha. But the Bank of Canada is not going to come out and say that. They never will. But the bond markets are reading into that as well. Interesting. So do you think it'll it'll hold firm for the balance of the year and yes. it'll status quo? And then this time next year, we'll start seeing some cuts? Yeah. And I would stick my neck out and say, we may even start to see cuts in the last quarter of this year. Right. Because based on our analysis with inflation, I think inflation will probably come back down to that target level sometime by by summer. Yep. But also at the same time, we're noticing slowing slowing growth in the economy. Um, in in the fourth quarter of of 2022, going into 2023, GDP was already zero. Uh, it's heading heading negative already. Mm. Recessions always induce central banks to cut rates. They'll hold for a little bit, but they'll cut at some point when they see the economy is tanking. And and I think the central banks aren't doing that right now because of the top level uh, employment numbers that we're seeing. But I think they know underneath all of that, just like our analysis has shown, that there is room for for getting interest rates back to a more normalized level. Okay. Well, listen, that's a good news. But having said that, too, there's there's always two fronts when you when you read the news and you watch the media. The narrative that they spin there is definitely one thing, as you said. But on in the trenches on the streets, uh, I can tell you even just this week talking to my agents and even on the Royal Page residential side. We're hearing about multiple offers. Yes. Just talked to a guy who on the weekend was involved in in a in a, a deal in the West End of Toronto there. Eight, nine offers. Yeah. So it's sneaking back into it. I mean, spring market's coming. Well, you know, and I'll say this, you know, for in, in terms of the housing market, there is fundamental demand out there. Yes. Fundamentally, Canadian housing market, because of restricted supply, but also very strong demand. Well, we get half a million people a year that come into the GTA for through immigration. There is pressure on demand. And so fundamentally, people need housing. And, and so there is that need. The problem with interest rates, what's happened with interest rates is it's taken out the marginal buyer. Mm. So at the margin, we've had all these people pull back. But it, it, underneath all that, you still have people with equity, still need to buy houses. And so there's demand there. On the supply side, people who were hoping to get those 30% price increases have pulled back. So you've got demand pulling back, but you've also got the supply pulling back. It's kept the market in a, in a balanced situation. Uh, said differently, there's no distress out there. People aren't just selling their homes uh, because they can't afford their houses. They're holding on. The banks are working things out with them. And so we haven't seen that distress. And so that that's created a bit of a floor underneath the housing market. Um, I'll take it one step further. I think the, the thing is the fundamentals are keeping that market afloat in the, yep. in, the, in the residential market. In the commercial market, I think it's the same sort of general story. There are fundamentals that are supporting, you know, property. We can talk about industrial in a second. Yeah. But, you know, very strong demand. But more importantly, you know, and I always talk about this in the commercial real estate market, it's the capital that matters, you know, in terms of pricing and things like that. And there is a lot of capital on the sidelines for commercial real estate that's parked, um, willing, ready to come in when there's opportunities. And that capital that's there is going to keep a floor on pricing and, and activity, I think, in, in, in the commercial markets as well. Yeah. And, and part of that, my last point, 
is that I think the reason why there's a lot of capital there is, you know, if we think about big institutions like pension funds, mm-hmm. they haven't shifted their allocations out of real estate and gone into bonds. Said differently, they don't believe that interest rates are going to stay high and I can make my return with high bond yields. They are coming back to, to real estate. And the reason why they believe that is maybe the story that I'm saying here is that they don't believe these interest rates are going to stay up where they're at for forever. So it's a blip. They're willing to ride it out. Yes. Uh, they're well-funded. They're well-capitalized so they can afford to do that. Yes. Um, but you're right. I do think that's that's the story. That's the narrative. I just wrote an article for stories and was involved with them. And, and we talked a little bit about the limbo that we're in right now. Yeah. I called it uh, the price discrepancy, the price disparity, and landlords, owners, developers being on different pages than users, investors, tenants, yeah. and trying to find a happy medium. So on the investment side, is that why deals are taking longer installing because people can't find a happy medium right now? Absolutely. I would say the bid ask spread in the investment market yeah. is as wide as it ever has been. You know, Anybody who's buying right now wants to buy a deal, but anybody who's selling is holding on and saying, well, I'm not going to give you that deal. So, so you got a wide bid ask spread, you know, price discovery is not happening. You know, the deals, you know, it's kind of a vicious circle. The deals aren't happening. You don't have a comp to hang on Mm -hmm. things. So you're hanging on last, last year's comps. Nothing is happening. And I think that's probably the, where we're at, we're at right now is the market is in price discovery mode. Okay. We're trying to see, you know, do these interest rates really affect the pricing, call it the cap rate of properties. Um, I'm surprised when I look at some of the office trades and the office numbers that we're having that we really haven't seen a movement up on cap rates. Not that much at all. Not that much at all. I will say, wearing my cynical hat a little <laughs> bit and coming from my background, that I think the appraisers don't have anything to hang their hat on. So there is some appraisal lag happening in the office market. And the owners of those properties, from what I remember watching, are sitting over the appraisers saying, well, you know, don't take any cuts down, keep the values in line, because they can. For sure. But at some point, the cash flow is going to matter. Yes. And if you're not getting rent checks coming in and you've got vacancy, those values are going to have to be adjusted. So there is a bit of a lag happening. Uh, and why I say there's a lag is when you go to the public markets, like the REIT sector, where there's instantaneous pricing in a, in a publicly traded market. We have seen office REITs perform very weak mm. uh, and have not have come off. And, and that's in recognition of, I think, those future cash flows you know, having an impact. On the flip side, with industrial, we haven't, we haven't talked about the fundamentals in industrial, but we've seen rent growth there, 20%, 25% year over year, well above inflation. Those cash flows are growing. You cannot do that in a bond. So at a 4% cap rate, call it a 4% cap rate, that 4% cap rate is embedded in there as ex- expectations of that continued rent growth happening. Even though there's a you know 50 basis point spread between now and industrial property and, and a 10-year government of Canada bond yield, which means you're only getting 10 basis points to invest in real estate. Is that rational? Well, I think it's somewhat rational if you believe that you can get that rent growth happening. I mean, it really depends on the terms of your lease structure and everything else. But if you can get that happening, then I think from the perspective of somebody who owns that, yeah, I'm going to keep my values in check over there. For somebody who's trying to buy, you're not going to get a deal on that depending on you know, you know what's locked in on, on the cash flows. So I think that's the issue that's happening in industrial right now is that those that pricing can hold on fundamentally and may not need to see a correction. Whereas in an office, given what we've seen in the capital markets and debt, there's there's a come to Jesus moment yeah. where where we will have to see values change. Well, especially on on 
industrial. I mean, we've talked about it a few times on this show, but uh, I mean, the vacancy rates are, are just, you know, some of the lowest ones we've ever seen. Yeah. Uh, as you mentioned, rates are some of the highest we've ever seen. <laughs> so it's performing about as good as you possibly could hope. Well, well you know, and th- that's the point where we're, we're effectively at a 1% vacancy in the GTA. There, yeah. You know, leasing is slowed down because there's simply no space to lease. Well, that's the problem now at this point, isn't it? Supply. So there's no supply. Um, and that's always been a perennial problem in the GTA. Um, you know, when I worked in development, you, you don't have five-year land. You have 20-year land because mm. by the time you can actually develop this stuff and get the permits and everything, you're looking 20 years out. So getting immediate supply out in the market is very difficult. You know, said differently, we've got five, six, seven percent of inventory under construction in an office. We've got less than two percent, one percent in 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 industrial. So that's gonna keep and I'm not even talking about demand here for a second. That's going to keep that vacancy rate low. Just from a supply perspective. Just from a supply perspective. Yeah. And a lot of users of, of, of space who can't find space now in the GTA are actually hopping the green belt, going out into the greater golden horseshoe, if they can do that, right? Yeah. Well, but, that's, I mean, for us, for Royal Page Commercial, I mean, that's one of our big differentiators is really the secondary and tertiary yeah. spaces in cities, just because um, if people are looking for expansion, looking where a Canadian business is going to go, it's not in the primary markets. It just can't be for a lot of them. So being able to look forward, look at secondary tertiary markets, are there cities that are positioning themselves to say, I don't know, I'm throwing some out here, Regina, Edmonton, whatever it might be, secondary markets outside of Vancouver that are saying, you know what, we'll jump all in because somebody's got to do it. Guess what? Calgary and Edmonton yeah. don't have a supply problem. You go, to, you fly over Calgary and Edmonton, you're in the prairies, there's land everywhere. And so I think a lot of um, users, Amazon, some of the bigger uh, retailers, they need warehousing you know, to service Western Canada. They're going to Calgary and Edmonton because mm-hmm. you can actually get, you know, these big bombers done. There's another fundamental thing happening here. You know, when goods come in from, say, China, they land on the port in Vancouver and then go on a train all the way to Calgary and then get distributed back to B.C. And the reason why they don't stay in B.C. is it's too damn expensive and congested. So that's Cal- crazy when you think about it, yeah. isn't it? So we're going to be in B.C., go to Calgary, sit there and then send it back to there. Yeah. And, and this just fits with the supply chain models that a lot of these guys are working with in terms of cost and time to market. And so that's why Calgary has kind of emerged as as the distribution capital for Western Canada. It's far more economical for guys to locate there, given the supply and demand function than it is in B.C., and this gets back to a point that, you know, the, the most important cost for, for firms that are involved in distribution, whether you are a third party logistics company or even a retailer, is time to market right. and the cost of that time to market. We've gone into this just in time inventory model. During the pandemic, it was just in case, you know, we got to get this stuff in. So that's their biggest cost. Real estate, 2% of that cost. You know, it's a very small fragment of, of their overall cost structure when it gets to go into the market. So that speaks to to demand, right? I mean, I need the real estate to get me in my cost structure, but it also speaks to where rents are today. The GTA rents are now at 16 bucks a square foot in industrial. A lot of owners, maybe, you know, other people are saying to themselves, can I get more rent growth on 16 bucks? That's too high. Well, if real estate's only 2% of your overall cost structure as a user, you'd probably pay 20 bucks. Wow. I, I think that growth still comes. Um, I get so much pushback from, 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 you know, people when, when I say, you know, I still think you can get 10% year over year rent growth off of 16 bucks. And, and the reason why they get that pushback is because, you know, go back 20 years, 
the GTA used to be a five buck per square foot market for years. Listen, I remember doing deals in North York, like $4, $3. Nobody would move five bucks. And I remember going into boardrooms back in 2007, eight, saying, you know, I think it's going to move to, you know, 10 bucks, eight bucks, call it eight bucks. (laughs) And And they thought you were crazy. (laughs) They thought I was nuts. Yeah. Like these old guys who had been in real estate for years just turned to me and they said, you're a young kid. You have no idea what you're talking about. Nobody in the GTA pays more than five bucks. We got to eight bucks. And that was because of that just in time inventory. Did the same thing in 2012, 2011, said eight bucks is going to go to 10 bucks. Same discussion happened. Nobody's going to pay 10 bucks. It happened. And now we're at 15, 16 bucks. I think it's going to go to 20. People are still saying the same thing, but I think demand and supply speak volumes. If you can't lease the space, you're going to pay up for it because you need it. So. So we talk often about opportunities, sideline buyers. Um, you can, you know, an old mentor of mine always said you can make just as much money on the way up as you can on the way down in a market because you just have to be nimble and adaptable, be able to look for deals where they may. Um, you know, we ask our clients, somebody comes along, they drop five, 10, 15 million dollars in Carl's lap. Where would you be putting your money these days? Well, you know, I, I think there's there's two ways to look at it. If you're a conservative investor, there are investments that have your cash flows locked in. Mm. Um, I, I still believe in multi-res as a, as a great place to be. Uh, fundamentally, we have strong demand and limited supply. That that's going to pay pay the cash flows because people are going to pay for rents. And we we've seen multifamily continue to to do well under those circumstances. There are caveats there too because of rent controls. So mm-hmm. I would be very cautious about what kind of buildings you have in, in, in being subjected to rent controls. But as we saw, you know, coming out of the pandemic, when there was a once in a lifetime opportunity for landlords to turn over suites because some people had gone home, they left these suites vacant, we saw 20% rent increases in some of that stuff as you get the, those old buildings back up to market. So, you know, I, I still like the multifamily story mm-hmm. because it is demographics, it is all that sort of stuff. Um, and then I love the industrial story. I spoke about it just now. I think the supply and demand fundamentals continue to speak to a tight market, which in turn drives cash flows in, in those things. So even though the pricing is expensive, I still think you make it up on the, on the, on the cash flows that are there to keep your values in check. Um, so my, my strategy would be beds and sheds for sure. Okay. But then the opportunistic side, <laughs> you know, and this takes a lot of, you know, crisp buck yeah. you know, to get yep, done yep. is I think there's going to be opportunities in office really um, to reinvent certain assets just like there was for retail but that's not for everybody so I think there's 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 these opportunities that that are going to start to come up in, in some of these other asset classes that you know when the herd's running one way if you take a contrarian perspective there are, there are potentially big re- returns to be made. Interesting. So. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, listen, we've uh, I've seen some people on the retail side yeah. uh, when it was opportunities presented themselves, they 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 stood fast and they were like, no problem. Yeah, herds going that way. We're going to go this way. We're willing to run the gamut and see yeah. what happens. Yeah, and they've done very well. Some of our clients. Yeah, and I, you know that you know I've watched retail and you know can thankfully Canada is not like the United States. Um, we don't have as much retail on a per capita basis as the U.S. does, so we don't have these all these dead malls sitting around with nothing going on. Where their highest and best use is just the land that's sitting there. There is some use for that because a lot of these malls are sitting in major population centers that need you know developments happening. Yeah. But you've got all this all this density that you can potentially unlock by putting a condo or, or, or and then create captured retail demand down there. 
the guys that did that realized some pretty good returns, right? You know, kind of reinventing these malls and creating some sort of um, new product. I think that's where office needs to go. Um, we could do some exciting new projects. Like I'm, I'm not of the view that our downtowns are going away. We talked about nobody being there on Monday and Friday. Well, if you look at transit usage, um, even in New York City, Chicago, Toronto as well, there's a lot of people coming into the downtown cores on the weekends to do all sorts of stuff. Our, our Toronto is a global city. Yeah. It's a 24-7 city. There's lots of things to do. Create something with that, those office buildings that are there so that it creates that buzz that, that kind of attunes things. That takes a lot of creativity. Um, hospitality is another area where, where there's opportunity on a mixed use sort of perspective. Um, I think that's, that's where we, you know, there's long-term opportunity to be unlocked. I think so too. I'm looking forward to spring and summer. Obviously we are bound a little bit by our weather up here. Yep. So it'll be in interesting to see how, uh, the summer and the spring go. Yeah. I think it'll be good times for everybody. Finishing up Q2, it'll be interesting to see what happens there. Business is reporting, seeing where numbers come in in terms of profits. I think that may have some impact on what we do. Yeah, yeah, I, I think that's a big story right now. Is you know we were talking about um, some of the tech companies pulling back and, and tightening up the bells. I think we're going to see more of that happening, where companies are tightening up things, maybe making job cuts a little bit more. So Q2, Q3. And particularly coming out of, you know, what we've been hearing in the United States with bank failures and things like that, um, there will be a lot more developments on that side to kind of see how businesses are, are doing. But, you know, not all doom and gloom. At the same time, there is still, as I mentioned, a lot of people out there who've been sitting on the sidelines who want to come back out. This may open up an opportunity, I think, for the residential housing market. I think there's going to be a big spring surge because yeah. a lot of people have been sitting on the sidelines. Once that spring surge kind of comes out, we'll probably normalize a little bit as well. So it, it's definitely 2023 to me. The rest of it will be a very interesting transitional year. It will be interesting. Uh, I'm going to be following with bated breath what CoStar says. <laughs> Obviously, uh, everything you put out is phenomenal to read, phenomenal to watch. We're looking forward. We're coming up to speaking season later this year. Right. So I'm going to be watching what panels you're sitting on. Sure. Uh, for our viewers and our listeners, the personal side for Carl, what, what do you like to do for fun? What are you doing on the sidelines? Well, it's, it's funny, you know, and, and then maybe I'm speaking a little from stats. So last week, uh, we went away to Florida, lunch yep. break. Couldn't believe how busy things were. Uh, and, but that speaks to the fact that I think there's been a bit of a behavioral change in where people are putting their money. Um, maybe for, you know, two, three years of sitting behind video cameras. Well, we don't need to invest in a pair of a new suit or pants. I'm going to put that money to experiences because I couldn't go away. And we've noticed in the data, but also me personally, that, you know, I put, put a lot of stock into experiences, mm -hmm. um, going to new places, um, you know, going to flying away, uh, doing things, building memories, doing all that sort of stuff is, is huge. And so, yeah, I think, I think that's, you know, my, my personal purview. I, uh, I've really put a lot of stock in that. I'd love to see my daughter see new experiences and, you know, be able to kind of go to new places. And, and build those memories up as opposed to just going out and buying something. And, you know, from a real estate perspective, you know, we talked about retail, experiential retail, you know, going out, doing something, uh, getting interactive, um, even if that means eating a great meal um, is all about what I think people are moving towards these days. And that's definitely where, where my headspace is at. It's a new world. Yep. Um, I, I like the fact that, you know, you can put one foot into your personal life these days. One, per, one foot into your professional life by having some sort of hybrid arrangement. And I think more people are grappling with that. But that's, 
you know, it's very demogra- demographic too. You know, people our, our age group call it the Gen Xers, the millennials. We see that for a lot of people who are maybe used to, you know, a Don Draper lifestyle of going into the office <laughs> yeah. and having liquid lunches and doing that sort of stuff. The world is shifting a little bit from that. So yeah. it definitely has. It's shifted, but uh, we talked about it. I think there's still a little bit of uh, shifting and, and we'll see how it comes out of. I think I'm the only person at the office that still wears a tie, but that's, <laughs> that's my background and my nature. Yeah. I like it. Experiences and memories. Uh, good. I'm glad you're doing that. That sounds fun. And this has been extremely memorable. Great. A great experience. So thank you very much. We're really, really happy that you came on and looking forward to see how the rest of the year goes. Well, thank you very much for having me. It was fun. Our pleasure. Thanks very much, everybody. As always, link uh, in the bio below will be to CoStar, all of Carl's information. Like, follow, subscribe. Thank you. And we'll see you on the next one. Mm-hmm.